Now let's uh, turn again for our second reading from the Word of God to the same passage that we were reading earlier, the book of Genesis and chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. And uh, let's read again from verse 37. After Joseph has finished explaining the meaning of Pharaoh's dream. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring. He took it off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paniah. And he gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was thirty years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, or fruitful, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. May God bless the reading of his word and uh, let's focus our thoughts both this morning and tonight with God's grace on verses 50 to 52, where we're told that Joseph had two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him, 
And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, or forget. For God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now the life story of Joseph is so well known that I hardly need to retell it in a way, but I think for the purposes of the sermon it will help just very briefly to recall it. You'll remember that Joseph was the youngest of 12 brothers, and he was, with the possible exception of his younger brother Benjamin, he was the only one who shared the faith of his father. And he discovered what many of us discover sometimes as Christians, he discovered that his worst foes were in his own household, as Jesus himself said. And the opposition to him in that household was so intense that the only reason his brothers didn't kill him was because it was simply more convenient to sell him. And they did. They famously sold him into slavery, into the land of Egypt. And as far as they were concerned, he was out of sight and out of mind. As far as they were concerned, really, he was dead. And uh, he was as good as dead anyway. And for a time, however difficult that was for Joseph as a a young man of about 17, uh, things began to look up in Egypt. He unexpectedly found himself sold as a slave into the household of Potiphar, a high-ranking Egyptian official. And uh, he rose in the ranks of the servants themselves to take a position of trust. But after a while, uh, it seemed like it was a false dawn because he was falsely accused of making advances towards Potiphar's wife. The result is that he wasn't just put to prison, but he was flung into a dungeon with chains on his feet. As we read there in the psalm and as we sang it, whose feet with fetters they did hurt, and he in iron slay. That's a reminder to us that at least for the first part of his captivity in the dungeon, uh, he was in a very difficult situation uh, where chains were actually cutting into his feet. But the Bible still tells us that God was with him. In fact, you find that little phrase here and there during Joseph's dark time in Egypt, just a reminder to us that he is still working in the life of Joseph. But God was with him. And in a very remarkable providence, he finds himself suddenly exalted to Pharaoh's right hand. One moment he is in prison, although by this time he has actually been given a measure of trust in the prison, but still and all, one minute he is in prison, and then just in the twinkling of an eye, Pharaoh takes him out of prison Uh, He ends up taking off his signet ring, clothing him in garments of fine linen with a gold chain of office around his neck. He's given the second chariot, second in importance in Egypt. Wherever he goes, people are to kneel and no one can lift hand or foot. It's just a very graphic phrase, but no one can really do anything without Joseph's 
permission. Only in regard to the throne, Pharaoh says, will I be greater than you. <clears throat> now, I don't know if I need to emphasize to you that in all these things, uh, Joseph is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it would be a wonderful thing just to trace Joseph's original blessing, his humiliation, and then his sudden exaltation, and just to see the life of Christ in it. At every turn, we see the life of the Messiah. <clears throat> but as well as being a type of Christ, he's also an example of Christian experience too. In, uh, in the letter to the Hebrews, we're told that Abraham was an example of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And, and here we have Abraham's great-grandson. And undoubtedly, we can say the same thing about him too, that through faith and patience, Joseph inherited the promises. He inherited really substantially in his 30s what he had been promised when he was 17 and even younger. And in between, <laughs> providence looked so unlike promise, so unlike it, but through faith and patience, he inherited the promises. And of course, that's a reminder to us that it is through much tribulation that we too must enter the kingdom of God. He's an example of that to us. Now, his exaltation, I referred to there in verses 42 and 43, where he's given the ring of office, the clothing of office, uh, the chain of office, the chariot of office, and all these things. But there's an additional exaltation in verse 45 that's really quite easy to miss. Because we're told that Pharaoh gave Joseph a new name. He called him Zaphnath Pania. And as well as giving him a new name, he also gave him a wife. He gave him as a wife a woman called Asenath, who was the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. So a wife and a new name. And before the seven years of plenty were over, and I think these seven years began just more or less straight away, <clears throat> before these seven years of plenty were over, uh, God blessed this marriage with two children. Manasseh and Ephraim. There was so often in the Bible, and we've seen this so often, names are very meaningful. They are important. Uh, they were important for Joseph, and they're meant to be important for us too. The name of the first, Manasseh, means to forget. It's to do with forgetting. And it's important to learn how to forget in the Christian life. I'll, I'll look at this more closely tonight, obviously, but we often think of what we should remember in the Christian life. But I think it's easy to forget that you need to forget in the Christian life. He called him Ephraim, he says, because God has made me forget. And the second child, sorry, he called him Manasseh because God made him to forget. The second child he called Ephraim, which means double fruit. It's to do with fruit bearing. Because again, he says, God has caused me 
to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Forgetting and fruit-bearing. Forgetting and fruit-bearing are important and they're also connected. There's a close connection between the two of them. Now, I want this morning, as uh, God enables us, just to, to take a step back from this. I think it would be more profitable to see these two names in detail tonight after we have just sketched out a little bit of the background. The thing I want you really to notice for the moment is that he gives them both Hebrew names. Now, he himself has been effectively an Egyptian in many respects uh, since he was 17 years of age. He has just been given an Egyptian name himself by Pharaoh. He has been called Zafnath Pania, which we'll look at in a minute. He has also been given an Egyptian wife, a Zenith, who is obviously a very important woman, the daughter of a very important man, Potiphera, the priest of On. On was another name for the city of Heliopolis, which means city of the sun. The Egyptians were worshippers of the sun god, and uh, Pharaoh himself was a, a representative of the sun god. In fact, Pharaoh himself was considered to be divine. Uh, Heliopolis was just 10 miles north of the city of Cairo. So this is obviously a very important man and his daughter an important woman. Uh, so Joseph is given an Egyptian name and he's given an Egyptian wife. And um, the fact that when the two children are born, Joseph gives them a Hebrew name is more important than we realize. After all, it's possible to see Joseph as hopelessly compromised in this new situation. Even if he was in prison and in the dungeon, at well, at least we can understand that. He is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's a man of God. And in an alien, strange, godless, materialistic country, well, at least he's being faithful, but it's not so easy to see that in his new position with his signet ring and his fine linen clothing and the gold chain around his neck. He was a Christian in adversity, but can he be a Christian in prosperity? And it's possible in his new circumstances to think that he is compromised. He takes an Egyptian name and he takes an Egyptian wife. Is it the case that at last Joseph is not just in the world, but off the world? Has he become like it anyway, even if he is not off it? It was one thing for him to dress like an Egyptian. It would be right to do that, or to speak their language, right to do that too. It's always right in all things to become as much as we can like all men, that we might, by the grace of God, win some. But it's another thing to compromise the faith. And has he just done that by taking this wife? Well, I think, friends, that that's to misunderstand what God is doing in Joseph's life at this point. And I think it is also to seriously misunderstand what God is doing in the life of Pharaoh at this point and in the life of Egypt at this point and the life of the Gentile world. Now, I think um, the best way to understand the marriage, in a way, is to begin with the new name that Pharaoh gives Joseph. He gives him an Egyptian name. And uh, those who know the Egyptian language of the time, and 
who are also Hebrew scholars, seem clear that the name Zaphnath Pania in verse 45 means God speaks and lives. In fact, if you have the New King James Bible, you'll probably see a little note in verse 45 there. You'll see the numeral 8 beside the name Zaphnath Pania, which says probably Egyptian for God speaks and he lives, or God speaks and lives. Now, although this name tells us something about Joseph, because God spoke through Joseph, and God was clearly uh, a living God working through Joseph, obviously the name tells us a lot more about Pharaoh, because it was Pharaoh who gave him the name. And uh, A few weeks back, maybe it's a couple of months ago, it's even a little bit more. I don't know if you remember how we looked at this Pharaoh. uh, When Joseph eventually brings his father down to the land of Egypt, you'll remember that Jacob uh, is introduced to Pharaoh. And Jacob immediately blesses Pharaoh. You'll remember how we expected that to be the other way around. But uh, Jacob, as an old man, blesses Pharaoh. Pharaoh accepts that blessing. He's struck by Jacob's age. Jacob tells him that he's been a long time in his pilgrimage, but not as long as his parents, his forefathers. And the interview, if we can call it that, closes again with Jacob blessing Pharaoh. Blesses him on meeting, blesses him on departing from him, and Pharaoh says nothing but asking him his age. A sign that this Pharaoh was humbled in heart that this Pharaoh was open to the word of God and that God was speaking to him. Now, these things happen about, well, I don't know, 10 years after this incident here. That reminds us that God has begun here a work in Pharaoh's heart that he certainly brings to fruition later. Now, I think it's easy to overlook the effect of this first meeting with Joseph and Pharaoh. It's easy to overlook it. In fact, the more I think of him, the more I believe God was at work in his life in a saving way. I mean, sometimes you see the the Lord at work amongst the mighty and the noble in this world. Paul tells us that not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. That's true. But he does call the mighty and he does call the noble. And certainly in the Bible, we're told that the hearts of kings and of rulers In the hand of the Lord, their hearts are like rivers of water and he may turn them as he wills. An important thing to remember in every single era that the hearts of rulers, of people in government, are in the hand of the Lord and that he can turn them whichever way he wills. Now that may just be a reference to influence and what we would even give for influence in our own day. Just an influence on our first minister an influence on our prime minister. People like Darius, the king, uh, who was such a friend to Daniel, or King Cyrus, whom God moved in his heart to let the Jewish people back to their homeland. But God can go further than that, as well as turning their hearts by way of influence. He He can also turn their hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, I wonder if Abimelech, the king of 
Philistia was like that. I think through his encounter with Abraham and Isaac, the heart of that king was changed. Or what about Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel's day? I mean, he certainly is brought from a place of pride, arrogance, brought to a place of humility and recognizing the one true God as Lord of heaven and earth, the one whose hand no one could stay or ask what you are doing, the one who has an everlasting kingdom. Certainly the Queen of Sheba in Solomon's day, living miles away from the people of God, she's brought by God to meet Solomon and to meet Solomon's God. Now, I think Pharaoh's experience is something like this too. Now, the name that he gives to Joseph is interesting. God speaks and lives God speaks and lives. Not God lives and speaks, but he speaks and lives. I think Pharaoh is really saying something here about his own experience of God, which just began a few days before. He knows now that God lives and that he speaks. And he knows that God lives because he speaks. God has spoken to him in word. And in providence, through the dream, the dreams that he gave him. And after all, that's how we all know God lives. It's not something that we work out in our minds uh, by argument. It's something that comes to us through speech. We know that God is alive because God has spoken. We don't know that he speaks because we know that he's alive. We know that he lives because we've heard him speak. And when we think about it, it has to be like that. I just uh, mentioned in my prayer that no man has seen God at any time. He dwells in light unapproachable, whom no man has seen or can see. There is a vast chasm between God and the creature. And therefore, to be known, he must speak. And he must speak either in words or in pictures. After all, pictures are essentially just words. Drawn words in pictorial form. God must reveal himself. And and when he does so, we see that he lives. Uh, We're told in the gospel according to John that in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. That, of course, is a reference to the Son of God. It is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the name that he carries here is is the name Word, uh, the word Logos. He is the communication. He is the communicator. When God is communicating with the world, he does it through his word. And it is through his word that he is known. Um, That's how he chooses to make himself known through his voice, through communication. Think, for example, um, when you open your eyes on the creation around you, you see that God lives. Yes, but why? Because he speaks in it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows the work of his hands. God is speaking in the sun and the moon and the stars. 
and you yourself as a Christian, you didn't know that God was and then went on to find where he spoke. It's the other way around. You heard him speak and then you knew that he was. Francis Schaeffer famously wrote a book called He is There and He is Not Silent. And how important that is, God is there and God is not silent. But we could also say that God is there because he is not silent. Because we have heard him speak. Now think of Pharaoh. Why does he give Joseph the name God speaks and lives? Well, it's because of his own experience. First of all, God spoke to him. God spoke to him as he does so often to us in a mixture of word and providence. And providence, of course, is another form of word, is it not? He speaks to him in a mixture of spoken word and providence. Now, that's uh, that's usually the mixture in which we all recognize God's voice. Uh, God's voice is often preached in our hearing. We We read it in the Bible, we hear it in the pulpit, but it's usually when it's mixed in with providence in the hand of God that we have a twofold witness. And uh, that's just the way he works. He spoke to Joseph, to Pharaoh, sorry, in a dream. God can still do that. He can trouble us in a dream. He can encourage us in a dream. He can alert us in a dream regarding ourselves or someone else. This is a double dream. The two dreams are similar, but they're not identical. He wakes up after the first one. He dreams a similar dream again, and he knows that it means something. Having said that, he could have shrugged it off. He could have just said, well, that was a strange thing, and just left it at that. But he has this nagging feeling that there's more to it than that. And that's very often what happens when the word of God comes to you and it comes with power, you you start to feel that there's more in it. Uh, maybe you might have looked at the Bible itself as a collection of interesting human writings, or maybe to you even non-interesting human writings. But then you begin to feel that there is more to it. He calls his advisors. Now, we're not told that any of his advisors gave an explanation. They're called here magicians, but we have to understand that that word magicians is rather similar to the magi who were in Babylon and who came to visit Christ. These are astrologers. They are very learned people. And uh, they, they are people who are essentially psychologists uh, slash spiritualists. That is really what they are. We're not to think of them as, in that respect, as foolish and incompetent people. These are people high up in government who are... Um, expert advisors, and they, they have a good understanding of human psychology and so on. But And they do lay great emphasis on dreams. Um, now, we assume that they must have given him some explanation of the dreams, even if they were stuck for a complete explanation. If they were anything like their counterparts in Babylon, they would have had manuals for interpreting dreams, as they did in Babylon. But whatever explanation they gave it, didn't seem to satisfy Pharaoh. Now, this is an interesting thing. You'll remember that Pharaoh's dreams here are not like Nebuchadnezzar's. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't even recall what he had dreamed. That's why it made the advisor's job so difficult. But Pharaoh did. He remembered his dream. But they're not able to answer or to explain to his satisfaction. This is the thing, you see. When God begins to impress his word upon your heart, you're not easily brushed off. 
you're not easily satisfied by human explanations. It's like that when you read the Bible and when the word of God is preached and it starts to come to you with power, the usual explanations of what's going on just won't do. For example, you, you start to develop this interest in the Bible and you want to, you want to know, what is, it, is this really God speaking? I feel it might be God speaking. It's certainly having an effect on me that the words of other people don't have. It's got a kind of um, ring of truth about it. it. It has a kind of internal evidence of authenticity. And some people around you, you know, conscious that you're suddenly becoming interested in, in this word and you want to know more about it. They say, oh, look, you know, you're just at a low point in your life or you're just feeling very vulnerable just now or uh, you're just going through this part of your life maybe when you're wondering about other things. Maybe maybe if you're older, you're getting towards the end of your life and you're, and you're just wondering. But no, none of these explanations will do because there's just a, an authenticity about the word of God when it comes to you. And it was like that with these dreams. It wasn't like previous dreams, uh, explanations from close counselors and friends, no use. You want more because you think this is more. And then there's a strange thing, you see, because one of his high-ranking officials hears of this and comes to him. He, he is the chief butler, which means that it's not like a, an ordinary butler. I mean, this man is essentially in charge of the um, of the festivities and the banquets in, in Pharaoh's household. This, again, is a very able man with great responsibility. And he says, I remember, he says, when you put me in prison because you suspected me some years back, he says, I, I remember a young man there who told me the meaning of a dream that I had. And he said, he, he came through, it came through. Now, it's hard to explain this in any other way except the hand of God on Pharaoh's life. I mean, it just happens. It just happens that Pharaoh here is introduced to a prophet of God. He's already received the word of God, but he doesn't understand the word of God. And isn't it interesting that God then takes him to a prophet of God? It's rather similar to what happened with the Queen of Sheba. Uh, she had become intrigued by sayings which she had heard, uh, proverbs, mysterious sayings to do with the name of God, Jehovah, from a foreign country, Israel. But, but her heart was hooked. She wanted to know more. And uh, she wanted to meet Solomon. Uh, she heard of the wisdom of Solomon, and so she went to meet him. Now here... Pharaoh is suddenly introduced to a man of God. Now, this is a wonderful thing in your spiritual development, too. Not only does God begin to speak to you and begin to grip you, but he introduces you to someone who is able to explain the word of God to you. The Ethiopian eunuch, too, on his way back home from Jerusalem, was sitting in his chariot, you remember, reading the prophet Isaiah. And he was reading chapter 53. And there was a reason he was reading it, of course, because he had just visited Jerusalem and the whole city was ablaze with discussions of these prophets. There was a, a new sect proclaiming that 
Isaiah 53 was all about Jesus of Nazareth, who had just recently been crucified. Others were saying that the prophecy had nothing to do with Jesus at all, that it was all about Israel and nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. And of course, God sends Philip, the evangelist, all the way from Samaria to that dusty road to Gaza, from Gaza to Egypt. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip says? How can I understand, the man says, unless someone guides me? And Philip famously preached Jesus to him. In other words, he showed him from the scriptures that Jesus fulfilled the words that were spoken in Isaiah 53. This is essentially what's happening here. God is going to introduce Pharaoh to someone who will bring the word of God to him, someone who will explain it to him. Now, friends, that's a great blessing. It's a wonderful blessing to have the word of God in your hand. It's a double blessing to have someone who will explain to you what that word of God means. In a sense, there's no reason why Pharaoh should send for a Hebrew slave in a dungeon. But needs must. If you want to know, and if your soul is beginning to bother you, and if you think there is a true God who may be contacting you, you need to know. So you'll notice then that he hears the words of Joseph. When uh, Joseph comes in to him, um, well, Pharaoh says, I have heard that you can understand a dream and interpret it. Joseph says, not in me, he says. That's in verse 16. It's translated here, it is not in me. You'll notice that the little words it is are in italics. It's just emphatic, not in me. He wants, to, he wants to make that plain right away, that whatever he's going to do for him, it's not himself, not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. peace. Notice that he's not afraid to speak about God. He's here in front of a man who can put him to death at any moment, not afraid to speak about God, and at the same time, he's very careful to give the glory to God just as you should be, and I should be too. Let's be unafraid to speak about God, and let's make sure in our speaking about God that we give the glory to God. So much of glory is taken to man. Let's make sure we say, not in me, God. Not in me, God. I want you to notice too that the little thing... Um, Joseph says here by way of introduction is, is, is very interesting too because he mentions the word peace. It is not in me, he says. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Now, I think that's a, a clear introduction here to the fact that what we have is essentially a gospel message. Um, <clears throat> every time God speaks to you, he speaks peace until he finally condemns you. Uh, by, by that I mean that all his dealings with you, his revelations to you, are with a view to bring you to conversion and mercy. That's why even if chastisement is preached in this day, and rightly so, it's a day of blasphemy and rebuke, and it's a day of chastisement, and it's terrible if that's not preached. But it must be mingled with a message of peace, because God's design towards you is still a design of peace. And here it's the same with Pharaoh. 
having said that, you know, I, I do have to qualify that, I think, a little bit. Uh, we have an example of Saul as someone uh, to whom God had spoken peace all his life long until at last um, God ceases to speak to him altogether. And uh, the fact that God ceases to speak to him altogether is a sign that uh, he was doomed. And uh, sure enough, uh, Saul perished when God ceased to speak to him. But by and large, this is nonetheless true, that the message that God's giving us is a message of peace and reconciliation. Turn and you shall live. And so when Joseph gives the message to Pharaoh about the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine, um, the dreams of Pharaoh are one, he says. Both dreams mean the same thing. And the dream, he says in verse 32, is repeated to Pharaoh because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. <clears throat> Very often God speaks twice. I don't know if you've noticed this in life, but when he's pressing urgent things upon us, he, he does it more than once. The dreams of Pharaoh are one. Um, God is a way of synthesizing and unifying things. I mean... <clears throat> You know, when the Bible starts to come to life to you and when you're recognizing that God is speaking in it, you'll notice that it begins to synthesize and unify. And the more you analyze it and break it down, the more you can synthesize it and piece it back together again. So it becomes a, a single tapestry. The word of God is one. Forty authors, at least the Bible had, but there's one mind. There's one author. And you're conscious of it like that. It is one message, and it is a message of peace, but a message of peace providing you turn and repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, and you shall have peace with God, as we heard last Sabbath morning. On the other hand, remain in unbelief, and you remain under a curse. Now, the staggering thing here is, staggering from a human perspective, the staggering thing is that Pharaoh believes the message. Have you ever wondered why Pharaoh believed the message? He, he rejected what his counselors told him, his inner circle, rejected them. He takes the word of a Hebrew slave that he has never clapped eyes on before. And he has no proof as such that what Joseph says is true. Um... Joseph didn't perform a miracle other than give an interpretation. Now, you say he gave a true interpretation. Ah, yes, but how does Pharaoh know that? It'll take at least eight years before Pharaoh can begin to verify what Joseph says. There's got to be seven good harvests, and that's got to be followed by seven poor, very poor harvests. And it's only until the eighth arrives that he can really begin on rational grounds to wonder if what that man says was true after all. And in fact, it'll take 14 years before the word is proved to be true. But there's something about the man and something about the message that just fits. He recognises it. And that's the way it works with the word of God. It's... The word of God has many internal evidences of self-authentication. Uh, as the Westminster Confession describes it, the, 
the scope of the whole, the heavenliness of the matter and the um, the majesty of the style, uh, things that the confession says abundantly testify to it being the word of God. But then he says that the only way by which we are really persuaded of it as being the word of God is by the Holy Spirit witnessing to that effect in our hearts. And is that not what happens here? It just fits. Pharaoh suddenly says to Joseph, well, he says to his servants, can we find anyone like this? A man in whom is the spirit of God, verse 38. Have you thought about how amazing these words are from the lips of Pharaoh? Can we find such a one as this? A man in whom is the spirit of God. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, verse 39, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and as wise as you. Zaphnath, Panea, God speaks, and God lives. And I know God lives because God speaks, and I know God speaks because of my dream and because he has sent you to interpret the dream for me. God has spoken in my dream. He's spoken in my interpretation. And he has spoken through his servant, even if that servant has been despised and rejected by men. Does this maybe put yourself to shame? Um, with your Bible in your hand, not just a dream at night. Oh, you say, well, if I had a dream like that, oh, do you really think so? <laughs> do you... Do you think a dream would be more persuasive than the word of God? Really? How many dreams have you taken seriously in all your life? Probably none. Why would you take a direct dream from God seriously? Do you really think a dream is more substantial than the word of God that you have in your hand and that you are hearing in your hearing? You've got your Bible in your hand. What's more, you have the proclamation of it. You've had perhaps many ministers in your experience who have brought to you the word of God. And it's come to you in such a way that there is a testimony to your conscience that it is not the words of a man, that it is the voice of God. You should know today that God lives because you have heard him speak. You have heard him speak. So Joseph is happy to take the Egyptian name. Why not? The occasion is a profoundly spiritual one, and he knows that Pharaoh has been spoken to by God. Now, I think it's in that light that we understand the gift of a wife. Now, the new name and the wife are together here in the verse. On the face of it, uh, taking this woman as a wife looks like a compromise. Now, I know it's later on in the Bible, but certainly the law forbids to take a heathen woman or a heathen man as a partner in life. In the New Testament, we are told not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Paul, of course, affirms that we must marry in the Lord. And I think we can understand as Christians that it's the most unnatural thing in the world to want to be married to somebody who is not in the Lord. How can, we, how can we really contemplate that? 
we we must be to think about that we must be seduced by beauty or power or um, distracted by the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eye or the pride of life and you say well is that what's happened here to joseph has he has he suddenly suddenly and unexpectedly become drunk on power is is that what's going on well there's no doubt that temptations can can suddenly come i mean joseph has been consistent all his life long he was consistent at home under persecution he was consistent as a servant in potiphar's household he was consistent in the prison but you know it's not as easy to be consistent in in prosperity as it is in adversity uh, and and temptation can come in in great prosperity you'll remember that when abraham uh, went out in the strength of god to fight uh, with the coalition of kings that had taken his nephew lot captive um, he went out and he fought with them he had 300 men himself who were trained soldiers and he fought with them and he delivered the king of sodom as well as lot and the king of sodom immediately comes up to him and he offers all the spoils of the conflict and uh, abraham of course says no he says i uh, i cannot take that in case someone says that the king of sodom has made me rich and uh, god then immediately comes to him and uh, he says to him abraham i am your shield and i am your exceeding great reward in other words because you have rejected this worldly prosperity given to you at such a tempting occasion when you are weak after warfare he says i will make sure that you are compensated for by that now has this temptation come to joseph suddenly he can marry into a high family suddenly the daughter of the priest of potiphera is offered to him as a wife has he succumbed he compromised well friends i don't think so now in saying that i'm not going to lay stress on the fact that he's an exile and that there are no people of god available to marry i'm conscious of that although it still wouldn't be a justification for marrying a heathen and of course i i don't think joseph is in a hurry to marry either he is 30 years of age but this is a man who's been in prison and during his imprisonment he hasn't become impatient he's not a man who comes out and says right i've got 13 years of life that i want to reclaim now and i'm going to start living it that's that's not the kind of experience he had in prison you know experiences like prison and darkness can put people two ways you can either come out worse or better it's as simple as that joseph didn't learn impatience in the prison he learned patience he learned to wait upon god he learned to hope he learned to pray he learned to believe to trust in other words what i'm saying is this that what joseph recognizes with this offer of marriage to asina the daughter of the priest what what he does really is he recognizes god's plan for himself and for egypt too in other words if it had simply come on its own and may have been different but it doesn't come on its own it comes with the dramatic exaltation from prison into exaltation it comes 
with the new name that Pharaoh has given him, which Joseph immediately recognizes as a spiritual name. This is a spiritual man. He knows that Safnath Pania is God at work in Pharaoh. And so he knows that this wife that Pharaoh offers is now God's plan and purpose too. It is the Lord speaking. When I was preparing the sermon, it actually occurred to me that there was a kind of similarity here with the way in which God spoke to another Joseph in the New Testament when he was going to put away his wife um, because he thought that she was guilty of um, of, a, of ad- adultery, really. Don't be afraid, Joseph, to take Mary to you as your wife. I think this is essentially the same thing. God is saying here to Joseph, look, don't be afraid to take Asina, the daughter of Potiphar, to you as your wife. It is my special plan and purpose for Egypt, for the house of the priest of On, for Pharaoh, and for the Gentile world. My plan and my purpose. It's not Joseph's desire for power. It's not Joseph thinking that he's arrived and he can do what he likes now that he's a big man. This is Joseph being obedient to what he understands as the clear will of God at a profoundly spiritual moment. He recognizes that God is doing something here and taking this wife is part of it too. It doesn't apply to us in the same way. God's permanent will for us in the New Testament is not to be unequally yoked with the unbeliever. But this is a special word of God. Uh, I'm sure Joseph knew, you know, that he wasn't. Although I said the law was given later, we still have examples earlier than Joseph of making sure that you did not marry outside the Lord. You'll remember how Abraham, uh, Joseph's great uh, great-grandfather was so anxious that Isaac, his son, would not marry a a heathen woman. Um, And uh, there are other examples too. I mean, there's the example of Lot himself and the terrible ruin that he nearly brought on himself by marrying into um, a family in Sodom and so on. There are are plenty examples like that. Um, So this is not a compromise. This is something different. It's really a picture of a Gentile world coming to the Savior. And to to come to Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, we'll look at them in more detail tonight, but you'll notice that it's Joseph's will that rules the house. Is it not an interesting thing that the two boys are not given Egyptian names? You would expect them to be given Egyptian names, but Actually, they're not. They're given Hebrew names. And what Joseph is doing there is more than just uh, giving them individual names with particular meanings. We'll see that tonight. But he's giving them Hebrew names as as a kind of emphatic statement about who he is. Just as he did 80 years later. After all, he was 110 when he died. 80 years after this exaltation, when he lay on his deathbed, you'll remember how he said... To, to the children of Israel, to keep his body, to embalm it, but not to bury it, he says. Keep it embalmed because, he says, I want you, when you leave this place, to take my bones 
and to bury them in Canaan. <clears throat> that, by the way, was a kind of encouragement on Joseph's part because he knew that dark days were coming. And he said, I, I want you, in effect, to, to look at my, my embalmment, look at my sarcophagus, look at my body, and as, as long as it is there with you, let it remind you of the promise that you will return. Your darkness shall become light, the crooked path shall become straight, and that God shall fulfill every word that he spoke through Abraham and spoke through me too. Let it also be a reminder to you that my heart was never in Egypt. Let it be a reminder to you that my heart was always in Canaan. I don't ask you to bury me there because of nostalgia. I don't ask you to bury me there because I remember as a young man how I played and sang. It's not because of my youth. It's not because of my love for my father. It's because I hope in a better country. I hope to lie with Abraham, my great-grandfather, with Isaac, and with Jacob, my father, whom I buried. I want to be buried in that better country because, despite all the wonderful cities of Egypt, I look for a better city whose maker and whose builder is God. And even though he calls the name of his first son Manasseh because he said, God made me forget my father's house, it's obvious that in whatever sense he forgot his father's house, he didn't forget it in this sense. He forever wanted to be associated with it. So what God has done for Joseph here is profoundly spiritual. He has suddenly exalted him. He's given him a name which testifies to God speaking and God living. He's given him a wife and now two sons. And by faith, he gives them Hebrew names. What these names mean, we'll see tonight. May the Lord bless our meditation on his word. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our God, how much we need to remember that you continue to work in our own lives and in our nation too. You are at work in the world, bringing purposes to pass that uh, we can only glimpse, and even then, only in retrospect. We pray to trust in the one who is doing all things well. And even if a darkness of affliction comes upon us, as it did upon Joseph, that we would keep our eye in faith upon God. For you do all things well, and you will make all things work together for good, to those who love God and who are called according to your purpose. So, Lord, grant us such faith and go before us this evening as we again are gather around the world to give praise and thanks to God. In the Redeemer's name, Amen. Our last uh, singing is in Psalm 37. In the combined book, it's page 252. Psalm 37, to the tune St. Thomas. After opening with a, a counsel not to worry about evil people, or to be tempted to envy them, 
In verse 3, set thou thy trust upon the Lord, and be thou doing good. And so thou in the land shalt dwell, and verily have food. Delight thyself in God. He'll give thine heart's desire to thee. Thy way to God commit, him trust, it bring to pass shall he. And like unto the light, he shall thy righteousness display. Now poor Joseph had his righteousness doubted for many, many years. And he thy judgment shall bring forth like noontide of the day. Rest in the Lord and patiently wait for him. Do not fret for him who prospering in his way success in sin doth get. Verses 3 to 7, then, to the praise of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.